try to envision what it would be like if after a happy Thanksgiving, while you were busy decorating and making purchases for Christmas, you were told by the media that the United States had been savagely attacked by a foreign power. Well, you don't have to envision it, for it truly happened in 1941. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. History in every century records an act that lives forevermore. We'll recall, as interline we fall, the things that happen on Hawaii shore. Let's remember Pearl Harbor. As we go to meet the foe, let's remember Pearl Harbor. As we lift the Alamo, we will always remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to victory. Yesterday. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Let's remember Self-confidence in persons and in nations can be broken surprisingly quickly. All it takes is the unexpected. That was certainly the case for the United States on December 7, 1941. The attack on Pearl Harbor, perpetrated by the Japanese, was not only an onslaught and an assault against the U.S. Navy personnel and their accompanying ships, but on the collective American psyche itself. Few persons have spent more time pondering this fact than my guest today, William K. Kingerman. He is the author of The Darkest Year, The American Home Front from 1941 to 1942. It is published by St. Martin's Press and is an examination of a nation out of necessity bracing itself for war. From Franklin Delano Roosevelt to Rosie the Riveter, life in the USA would never be quite the same again because of the effects placed on a traumatized nation. It is my great pleasure, Mr. William K. Klingerman, to invite you to Watching America. I have to ask you, what was the initial kernel of interest, no pun intended, 
speaking in military terms. What was the initial interest that uh, caused you to devote so much of your life to an examination of these first few, uh, if you will, introductory years for the Americans in World War II? Well, it was, it's always been a, a time period that I've been interested in, and other projects have, have gotten in the way over the years, but, but now I had the time to do it, and I started working on it about five years ago. And it became clear to me early on that much of the work on the home front during World War II consisted of either local histories, which were so detailed on local events that that had limited relevance for the nationwide scene, or else collections of oral histories, interviews that had been done 20, 30 years after the war or more. And with what recent research has shown about reliability of the human memory, and with concerns about how representative any oral histories would be of the country as a whole, uh, even if you took, I mean, individuals obviously question is, are they representative of any group? And if you have a group, whether that's representative of the country as a whole, there really wasn't much else uh, written in a, in a uh, popular and yet one hopes scholarly in terms of the research and discipline um, with that type of, of, of uh, analysis of the home front. So the more I got into it, the more I realized also that the common perception of what the home front was like, that is, self-sacrifice and unity uh, was anything but the case. It was just far from the truth. Well, you say uh, in your work that there were many military setbacks in the Pacific, but even uh, before that, you say that basically uh, you declare there was a, a, a kind of incompetency in the administration of Roosevelt uh, as far as the initial uh, strategy. In terms of military strategy? Yes. I, well, I'm not sure there was a military strategy. Um, I think what they had, what Roosevelt was trying to avoid was any type of conflict before the United States military was ready. Uh, And I think they had always planned on, well, since the early 20th century, they had planned on Japan being the enemy. Um, But now you've got, obviously, the the increasing need to supply the allies. Um, And so the resources were stretched very thin And it wasn't at all clear in terms of building up the military strength of the nation. It wasn't at all clear that uh, the Roosevelt administration had any viable plan uh, as to how it should allocate the nation's resources. Uh, That is, the military seemed to be preparing for war against almost anybody at almost any time in almost any part of the globe. Uh, and so it was that failure to do a realistic analysis, uh, and it may have been impossible. Things were uh, events were shifting so rapidly that it may have been impossible to do that until we were actually in the war. But I think there was a definite failure to allocate the nation's resources adequately before Pearl Harbor, and even for a while after Pearl Harbor. Britain was called into the war in 1939, and uh, with the fall of France, we fought alone for uh, a number of years. And obviously, Churchill was beside himself trying to figure out how he could enlist the aid of Roosevelt. He had a good relationship with him initially. But what were the plans in place to assist, if at all, officially or unofficially, Great Britain prior to Pearl Harbor? 
Well, the initial steps uh, were taken shortly after the invasion of Poland in September of 39, and that was the um, repeal of the Neutrality Acts in the United States uh, on the basis of cash and carry. That is, we would provide materials to nations at war if they paid in cash and if they carried the materials away on their own. Uh, and that was a, a reflection, those neutrality acts have been a reflection of the popular perception of what had drawn us into World War One. That is, American merchant ships being sunk um, while trying to carry supplies to the Allies um, and the, the effects of the loans to the Allies as well. So the repeal of the Neutrality Acts in the fall of 1939 was the first step towards supplying the Allies. Um, the fall of France, of course, called that strategy into question because a number of Americans began to think that it would be far better if we kept all the military resources at home uh, instead of sending them to Britain, especially since if Britain were fighting alone, it was likely to fall, was the perception in the United States. Um, and so we ought to build up a fortress America. Well, by the fall of 1940, it was, it was much clearer that Britain was, in fact, going to survive. Uh, and so the next step, of course, was the Lend-Lease arrangement, uh, the Lend-Lease bill passed in early 1941 um, to provide, because Britain was running out of money to pay for our, our supplies, uh, to, to provide those supplies to Britain on the basis of, of loans. Well, it's a contemporary term, but we use the term dog whistle. Do you suppose that that measure going through and being obviously so noted in the newspapers of the time was uh, a bit of a dog whistle to the nation to say, you know what, we're probably going to get embroiled in this thing? Oh, I think so. I think the, I think it made it so clear whose side we were on um, that, uh, and some Republicans, especially in Congress, had been concerned about this right from the start. If we start shipping goods to the to Britain and France, Germany is going to attack us in retaliation. But I, I think it's true. I think newspaper columnists recognized that uh, Len Lease made it clear whose side we were on and that it was just a matter of time uh, before we got drawn into the conflict. One of the many interesting facets to your book, The Darkest Year, which you um, make reference to, is the fact that there were some government officials in the United States who openly, as you put it, acknowledged that the United States might lose the war. Now, that seems, as uh, from a vantage point of somebody born across the water, as I am, was, um, the, incredibly un-American, because Americans are, are noted for their can-do spirit and yet you are indicating that there were people who had some degree of pessimism. That's certainly true. And, and it was clear to a number of military analysts, uh, both in and out of the, of the federal government, that we were, in fact, losing the war in, in the first half of 1942, certainly. The warnings continued until September and October of 1942, very high-ranking officials in the Roosevelt administration made public statements that the United States was losing the war and and could well end up losing the war if the people didn't buckle down and 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 redouble their efforts. I think you know it's partly a reflection of the fact that we did suffer obviously a, a number of military losses, um, unbroken really until until the uh, the Battle of the Coral Sea in May of 1942. 
but it's also a reflection of the complacency of the American people, which is one of the things that really surprised me. Starting in about February 1942, you get a number of both newspaper columnists and government officials and and Congress people accusing the American public of of basically sitting back on its heels, of not giving a, a full effort towards the war, of being complacent. Uh, and that I did not expect to see that, but it was very widespread, and it didn't stop until late 1942. Uh, one of the interesting things about the book, The Darkest Year, is you uh, consistently obliterate myths, and that's part of the, 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 the purpose of the book, as you've uh, already referenced. One of these myths is that there was you know, a bipartisan agreement when, in fact, you indicate that there was partisan animosities that were uh, quite substantial, that, that continued. Um, how do you account for that? Well, I, it just the, the nature of the partisan process in the United States. I think um, there was a period of about six weeks following Pearl Harbor when the Republicans kind of backed off uh, and kind of felt their way and, and, and didn't want to criticize the administration for fear of seeing, seeming disloyal. But I think by by early February, certainly, it was clear that the administration was sort of fumbling and bumbling in some areas domestically and, and even in terms of, of military production, um, that they felt more confident uh, to speak out. There was, there was virtually no criticism of the war effort as such, that is, uh, not undercutting Nobody was saying we shouldn't be fighting Japan, for instance, although there were some that, that questioned whether we really should be fighting Germany uh, while we, since Japan was the, the country that had attacked us. But I think there were enough missteps by the Roosevelt administration to embolden Republicans to attack the Roosevelt administration on domestic issues. And the fact that the Republicans had been out of power for the last decade uh, and saw this as maybe a chance to uh, to win back some seats in Congress, to maybe to make some inroads in the next presidential election, uh, emboldened them to go out and, and, and start uh, making some attacks, which they did. They weren't shy about it at all. And as we're told, they even attacked his little dog, Fala. Well, eventually, yes. You know, that'll come a little later, but, but um, that Roosevelt, you know, brilliant job of turning that... Uh, now, initially, they would not attack Roosevelt himself because he was clearly the most popular man in America. Uh, and his approval rating right after Pearl Harbor was in the about 84, 86 percent. Uh, by February, it was down 70 some percent. Uh, but still, they would attack um, people around Roosevelt. They would attack his advisors. They would attack some bureaucrats who are always easy targets. Um, so that Roosevelt himself remains kind of untouchable, but his, his domestic policies clearly were, uh, were open to question. Let's move to the home front uh, in perhaps one of the most intimate ways in the United States. It happens to be my favorite holiday of the entire year, and I say that as a guy born across the waters, as we've said, in Britain, and that's the American glorious holiday of Thanksgiving. In Thanksgiving, November the third Thursday of 1941. What was the mood of the nation like, Dr. Klingerman? On that Thanksgiving, it was apprehensive. It, the, the country had been 
sort of on pins and needles throughout the autumn of 1941. Um, it was it was clear people could see the war clouds approaching. That was not uh, that was not a secret in any way. Um, it was clear that Japan was was continuing to move um, from China into Indochina. Um, it was clear also that um, American more and more American ships were being uh, attacked in the Atlantic. Um, and I think Americans had a, a very real sense of foreboding uh, on that Thanksgiving. And Roosevelt himself was was down in Warm Springs, Georgia, um, for his, his retreat and planned to spend the whole weekend, but got called back early because of, of uh, anxiety about what Japan had, had planned in the near future. So I think uh, Americans had been waiting and waiting and wondering what was going to happen. Um, it was almost sort of a state of suspended animation for a few months in the fall of, of 1941 and just waiting for that hammer blow. And some people um, would later claim that they felt a sense of relief with Pearl Harbor, that, okay, now the situation is resolved. The nation um, also at Thanksgiving was, was torn apart uh, very much in terms of the, the question of how much we should be helping the allies and whether we should get involved in the war or not. And people, when Pearl Harbor uh, occurred, I think others also thought that, um, okay, now the people will come together and be united. And, and there was, a, in some quarters, a sense of relief that that had happened, not necessarily in the White House, but, but among the public. So over the yams, the turkey, and the pumpkin pie, everyone in the family would look at the young man at the table and wonder what his fate would be within a few months? You know, that's one of the things that really caught my attention when I was looking through the, the newspapers and magazines of the time, just this um, the sense that this might be the last time we'll be together as a family for quite some time. And that would happen again at Christmas time because the draft hadn't really ramped up that much yet uh, by uh, by the end of December. But but there was this feeling that this was the last time we'll be together. And and once those young men disappeared, you really didn't know where they were. And this I thought must have been immensely um, disturbing to family members to have your son, your husband, your father, uh, your brother, go into the military service. And once they're in there, they can't tell you where they are for the most part. Um, and you don't know where they are and you don't know whether they're alive or dead at any given moment. Could they at least say if they were in the Pacific Theater or the European Theater? Boy, that's uh, my my understanding is no, but I could be wrong about that. I'm not, I'm not strictly speaking, a military historian, so I'm not sure of that. But uh, my sense is that, that that would have been censored out. Now, you mentioned husbands uh, being away. Uh, at this time, the Andrews sisters are singing Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree with Anyone Else <laughs> But Me. What did that have to do as far as uh, diminishing the security of the fidelity of marriages? Um, that's, that's a good question. It's what the initial effect of the war on marriages was to vastly increase the number of marriages just 
hundreds of thousands of recruits hurried up and got married before they before they entered the military and so the the nation was setting records for for marriages in in late 1941 and and early 1942 some of that of course was to avoid the draft but but much of it was men who already were uh slated for military service and hurrying up to um to get married before they went in there was a vast increase in prostitution in the United States in 1942. Wow. Um, part of it was professionals who would flock well, to... Well, it is the oldest profession, is it not? Well, that's, that's what they say. And um, part of it is them going to military bases, uh, especially on, on paydays. Uh, and they would go from one military base, most of which were in the South, one military base to another. Uh, it was also professionals going to the war production centers, uh, places where there were large defense plants, uh, because the payrolls there were going up. And so whatever effect that would have on a marriage, you know, the, there was easy in those defense production centers, the, the towns and cities, uh, to find prostitutes. And a, and a, another thing that surprised me was the the increase in amateur prostitution. Uh, we're talking is, teenage girls here. What is amateur prostitution? That's a curious term. Just well, a lot of them call themselves victory girls. Teenagers, some as young as fourteen, and eventually down to down to twelve. Disturbingly, um, what to help the American cause? I mean, what was the well, rationale? To, you know, the notion was they would hang around the the uh, the army camps or the the naval camps bases and would offer themselves essentially to to the soldiers and sailors and figure, hey, this guy might be shipped out tomorrow. Uh, he deserves to have a good time. I'll give him whatever I can. And you have a concomitant rise in the rate of venereal diseases. Uh, you have a rise in illegitimate births as well. Uh, these are the first war babies coming around at the end of 1942, and, and it's starting to become a serious problem. So as an attempt to uh, raise morale, they offered themselves um, uh, for the services of young men who might, in fact, be casualties. That's true. And it's also Alastair Cook uh, toward the United States in, in 1942 and, mm. and wrote up his perceptions. And he noticed when he went through, for instance, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, there's a large army base nearby. And and he said the girls and the men, the, the soldiers were in town for the weekend and teenage girls, local girls, would be coming down. He said some of them not particularly good-looking, but now found themselves the object uh, of of attention from men who were several years older than they were, uh, and they found that flattering. And I think that was part of it as well. People at the time said, "Well, it's just you know farm girls uh, or small town girls looking for a little bit of excitement." Um, it was. I was surprised, uh, you know, that some people didn't take it more seriously at the time. The government did take it seriously, but um, and started instituting curfews uh, in some cities. Well, let's go back again to those first few weeks of 1941. So um, we've already addressed Thanksgiving. Christmas comes along, um, and presumably sales were okay December 6th. After December 7th, what happens with retail? Does it go down? Does it go up? Is there a spike? Are people holding on to their money? What happens? Up until December 7th, the retail sales were on a pace to, to set records. And uh, after December 7th, there was about a two-week period when sales dropped dramatically. 
And Hedda Hopper, the gossip columnist mm-hmm. out in Hollywood, did her Christmas shopping in a department store and said, boy, you could have you could have fired off a cannon and not hit anybody, that the, the stores were that empty. Um, theaters were empty. Movies were empty. Movie theaters, restaurants, businesses were way down for those two weeks. Then uh, business started to pick up and and really uh, took off. And at the, the last few days before Christmas, people were buying just about anything that they could in the expectation that they weren't going to be able to buy these things in the future, that shortages were going to occur, in fact, had already begun occurring. Uh, and so they were going to get whatever they could while the getting was good. Um, so that... Um, and one of the uh, one of the new products available was Kodachrome, mm-hmm. um, the uh, the color film from yes. Kodak, and I think that became very popular because people want. And in fact, the advertisements played up the fact that your family is not going to be together again for a long time. So go ahead and, and take the picture. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, this program is Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I have the high privilege of speaking with Dr. William K. Kingerman, who is the author of The Darkest Year, The American Home Front from 1941 to 1942. It is published by St. Martin's Press. It is a wonderful read and is an examination, really, of the psyche of a nation uh, basically trying to deal with the trauma of uh, unexpected attack and realizing that they've been called into a large war, World War II, whether they like it or not. Let's consider Hollywood for a moment. You did um, reference Hedda Hopper. When we think of World War II, particularly World War II movies, we get images of Van Johnson and John Wayne and people like that. But there were some true patriots. Um, for instance, David Niven went to uh, back to Britain and f- uh, enlisted in the Royal Air Force. Um, and at the same time, we had Jimmy Stewart, who joined the American Air Force and was a, was a pilot here. As far as the measures taken by Hollywood, uh, Louis B. Mayer and the other moguls and what have you, what was the strategy? Was it just simply um, jingoism and the American flag and over there, over there, Irvin Berlin tunes and things of that nature? Or was there a, a, a strategic attempt to say, we are going to maneuver in this month with this kind of theme and maneuver with this kind of theme and another month later on in the war effort? Um, I think they clearly was no strategy involved. Um, I think Hollywood was struggling in the first year of the war to find out what type of films would appeal to the broadest uh, numbers of of moviegoers. Um, I think initially um, there were uh, films that portrayed Nazis as bumbling um, and that they could be outfoxed by clever Americans or clever Britons. Um, I think there were uh, comedies uh, 
that attempted to take the public's uh, mind off of the war. Um, they were also doing shorts that uh, supported the war effort. But I think I think Hollywood was really behind the eight ball because a lot of the top stars did volunteer for the service. Um, they were also losing cameramen and technicians behind the scenes. Um, they had restrictions put on filming. They could only spend $5,000 on new sets. That was a uh, limitation imposed by the Roosevelt administration. And they were having trouble finding materials for new sets anyway, especially lumber uh, and metal. Um, they were unable to travel to locations to do shooting um, because of uh, gasoline rationing and tire rationing. Um, there were frequently airplanes flying since most of the filming was done on the sound stages in Hollywood. There were, in Southern California, airplanes constantly going overhead, uh, distracting what was going on uh, in the filming of the movie. Um, they could not find... They could not find anyone to play Japanese characters. Um, there were virtually no Japanese actors in Hollywood to begin with, uh, and other Asian actors um, hated the Japanese so much they were unwilling to play uh, Japanese villains. Um, and the the industry was struggling with also the the salary limit imposed by the Roosevelt administration. That is, no one could earn more than $25,000 a year uh, after taxes and after paying their their, uh, obligations. Um, So the movie industry was kind of struggling to how are we going to, how are we going to deal with the war? How are we going to adapt to it? Um, And uh, you see a number of older actors coming back uh, into service and trying to discover new actors who were not subject to the draft for whatever reason. Mickey Rooney uh, did all kinds of, pardon me, Mickey Rooney did all kinds of gyrations to stay out of the draft um, because he was one of the top box office stars of the time. But, but, But Hollywood really couldn't figure out the best way to deal with the war. Um, and there were no good war pictures made, basically, for, through, throughout 1942. Well, you referenced the need for Japanese actors, which evidently were uh, in short supply. What was happening with the federal government's uh, internment camp uh, policy at that time with uh, approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans? Was that When did that come into full flourish? The order to evacuate Japanese and Japanese-Americans from the West Coast uh, was issued in late February of 1942. Um, Up to that time, you know, for the first, this is something else that surprised me, for the first six weeks of the war, there was virtually no mention of concern uh, about the activities of of the Japanese Japanese Americans on the West Coast. Um, not much concern about sabotage. As the war in the Pacific took on a darker tone, as one defeat followed another, um, there came to be more concern about it. Uh, and when Singapore falls in in early February of 1942, I think that kind of put the cap on it. But you had a long-standing um, uh, uh, discrimination against Japanese Americans on the West Coast anyway, because the Japanese had not assimilated into white society, uh, and also because white farmers wanted their land and didn't like the Japanese farmers as competitors. Um, and so 
adding those things together with um, the losses in the Pacific and the fact that Japan had, in fact, attacked us at Pearl Harbor. Uh, by February, all those things built up, and there was a groundswell of public opinion in the United States in favor of interning the Japanese, especially on the West Coast, obviously. One of the things which I, I thought was incredibly moving and yet comical at the same time was the fact that you make reference to a Confederate series of veterans from the con Confederate War, uh, or the war between the states, as I like to say in the South, or if you will, the Civil War, depending on your perspective, uh, with men who were over 90 years of age that they declared war on Japan. Um, could you tell us about this? This is well, astonishing. Yeah, this was this was part of the reaction, the immediate reaction to to Pearl Harbor, um, when everybody it seemed wanted to get into the scrap before it was clear exactly what that was going to entail. Uh, but there were a number. Uh, there was an organization of Confederate veterans in Georgia, all of whom were, as you say, over ninety years old, and they decided that uh, yes, they were going to they were going to take on the Japanese. There were a number of self-styled guerrilla organizations that sprang up, self-defense organizations across the United States uh, of people who would organize groups to to defend the country against, frequently against what they anticipated to be paratroop attacks, that, that Japan was going to, for some reason, drop parachutists into, say, the Rio Grande Valley. So Grandpappy, or, or, Grandpappy got his rifle? I, but, you know, it's... It was it, it was just remarkable that that no, virtually no community in the United States felt that it was invulnerable to enemy attack. Tuscaloosa, Alabama, had its civil defense because they said it could happen here in Tuscaloosa. Uh, it just it seems the smaller communities actually did a better job of organizing themselves in terms of civilian defense responsibilities uh, than the large cities. Um, but the, there was an organization in Michigan of Chippewa Indian women uh, who banded together in case the in case the um, Japanese or Germans came across the Canadian border. They were ready to to deal with them. The interesting thing I found was that evidently inmates at San Quentin were willing to take knitting lessons so that they could make sweaters for uh, and hats for soldiers. I found that heartwarming. Yeah. <laughs> That the that the convicted felons are uh, are going to be taking uh, taking up knitting to do that. Um, I'm sure life in prison was boring. The I think the people in in prisons, many of them, felt that as long as I'm in here, as long as I'm being incarcerated, why don't you put me out on the front line somewhere and let me do something to try to to try to help the country? Or and some of them just wanted to fight. I mean, some of them were in prison because they liked to fight. Um, and so they just, you know, they wanted to get into the scrap if they possibly could. And others were willing to do that, um, to knit the sweaters or the use of prison labor to make armaments increase during 1942, um, as well as using prisoners to work in the fields to replace farm laborers who had been drafted or who had joined munitions factories. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back.
If you're just joining us, this is Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is William K. Kingerman. He is the author of The Darkest Year, The American Home Front from 1941 to 1942. It's an examination of the early period of America's involvement in World War II, um, specifically after the attack on Pearl Harbor. What were the early rations? Now, rations went on in Britain for a a much longer period of time, I think, than they did in the United States. Rations didn't end in Britain, believe it or not, until July 4th, 1954. So it was like nearly nine, ten years after the, uh, a decade after the war. When did rations end in the United States and when did they start? Um, I I could not give you a date on the, on the ending of rations. Um, I'm, I'm, Certain, I'm fairly certain they didn't extend past the war, if if at all. Um, in terms of beginning, the first item to be rationed were automobile tires, uh, and sales of automobile tires were cut off on December 10th, 1941, three days after Pearl Harbor, um, and that was done partly because our supplies of rubber had been cut off by the Japanese conquest in the Pacific. We had not laid in a large reserve supply of rubber. Um, the automobile tire companies had been selling tires hand over fist throughout 1941, so they didn't have large stocks of tires on hand. Uh, and once Pearl Harbor happened, a number of Americans rushed out to buy whatever tires they could. Uh, and because of that consumer rush to buy tires, uh, the government instituted tire rationing very quickly. Um, Cars were also rationed, new automobiles. uh, At the end of January and early 42, basically civilian production of automobiles shut down for the remainder of the war, and the new tires on stock would be handed out very sparingly to to people whom the government thought needed them, emergency personnel on the home front. Sugar rationing was next. Sugar rationing began in the late spring, early summer of 1942, and Americans before the war consumed far more sugar than any other nation in the world, about 114 pounds per person per year, and and they bought about much of that was in you know cakes and, and pies and things. Uh, the average American bought 70 some pounds of sugar per year, um, and because again the sources of supply in the in the Pacific were being cut off, and we couldn't be sure how much we were going to be able to get from the Philippines the government instituted sugar rationing of about one half pound per person per week. If you if you bought most of your baked goods, um, that was fine. If you baked your own, you were going to feel the pinch. Gasoline rationing came about uh, in, the, in the spring for the East Coast uh, in the spring and summer of 1942. And that uh, the average motorist had consumed about 13 gallons of gas per week uh, before the war, and now they were being limited to three gallons. And uh, for the rest of the country, it doesn't take effect until December of 1942. And coffee is the is the last major item to be rationed in 42, and that occurred in the fall of 1942. People were limited to, everyone 15 years and older, limited to um, one pound of coffee every five weeks. And fuel oil, by the end of 42, fuel oil was also being rationed. Uh, And so that the average 
temperature indoors was supposed to be about 65 degrees. Betty Grable was the pinup girl during this period, and she was noted uh, most of all for her lovely legs. And uh, the nylons of the time, or silk stockings at the time, always had a seam that went down the back of the calf of the leg to the ankle, which I, as a healthy male, always think of as being delightful. Um, and uh, I permission of my wife to declare such. But women who didn't have access to silk stockings or nylon stockings, because they were used, I believe, for parachutes, um, would take to actually drawing with mascara that line down the back of their legs to give that uh, felt look. Was the nylon and silk being explicitly used for parachutes, or was it used for a variety of different things? Or was it nylon even? Maybe it was just silk stockings. I may be incorrect, so please correct me if I'm wrong. No, nylon disappeared as well. Okay. Uh, and my understanding is that, yeah, the parachutes took by far most of the, uh, most of the nylon and silk. And, you know, it, the, the disappearance of stockings, I think, had less effect than it might have because feminine glamour uh, really went out with the war. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and, and people were, I mean, women were more... Uh, more likely, to, well, certainly more likely to wear slacks. Slacks before the war um, were worn rarely by American women. Um, so the and, Kate Hepburn and were came upon, in? Uh, in polite society and by and by fashion critics. So it was a Kate but, Hepburn type of look with the slacks coming in. Yeah, and and um, I think slacks, uh, especially among younger women, but also among middle-aged women, and and again, a lot of the critics said you ladies shouldn't really be wearing slacks. But the notion was, obviously, if you are working, as more women get into the workforce, the industrial workforce, slacks are almost essential at work. But also, uh, at leisure time, the feeling was that if you, even if you didn't work, you wanted to look as if you did. Even if you weren't doing something useful and productive, mm. you wanted to appear as if you were. Uh, and so, you know, glamour kind of fades out. Uh, and this, this hits the movie industry as well. I mean, the Academy Awards goes from being a glamorous, razzle-dazzle sort of uh, banquet to just an ordinary dinner. Mm. Um, and, and so I think the, the disappearance of stockings has less effect. Uh, I think much more concerning to women than the disappearance of stockings would have been the disappearance of foundation undergarments. As the rubber shortage grew worse, um, they were afraid they weren't going to get the the rubber they need for new undergarments. You mean and for especially waist, if they were working, they, said they, they needed all the yeah. all the support they could get. Yeah. Having devoted so much time to research, you get excited as a writer, and there are times you go to bed and you can't sleep. What did you discover that you went to bed one evening and you could not sleep, and you were tossing and you turning? and causing your wife to wonder what was going on. What was this thing that you just could not get out of your mind in your research, and you said, I can't believe this? That's an interesting question. Much of my, much of my tossing and turning had to do with not being able to find the right words or the right phrases to say what it is I wanted to say or to find the right transitions. I think, I think that the, the discovery that bothered me the most was the growing disconnect between the federal government and the American people during the first year of the war. I found that very disturbing. 
the uh, the federal government censored the news very heavily and uh, would not tell the truth to the American people about what was happening overseas. Um, and that was partly due to the normal military desire for secrecy, not to give anything away to the enemy. It was partly due to bureaucrats who found it safer to not say anything rather than to say anything. And it was also due to govern- the federal government deliberately trying to build up American morale by playing up minor American victories and playing down severe American losses. But the net effect of that was to instill a, a resentment in the American people. And uh, the feeling that the government was holding back, um, that they didn't trust the American people, uh, and that there were more disasters that had already occurred that the that the government simply hadn't revealed to the American people. And I I found that that kind of sense of of dissociation between the people and the and a growing sense of distance between the government and the people very disturbing. Um, and I and I, I I wished it hadn't happened. The other thing that I I found hard to understand, which may have kept me up more uh, at night, um, was the the charges of complacency American uh, against the American people that they really weren't taking the war seriously enough, and that just kind of boggled my mind because. You know, the conventional view is that everybody was united and everybody was sacrificing and, and doing whatever they could to aid the war effort. But clearly that was not true. Um, war bond sales um, declined from, from January. They were, they were good, over a billion dollars. By February of 42, they were down to like $700 million. In March, it was down to $500 million. Uh, and they continued to go below quota for much of 1942. Um, and uh, efforts to get Americans to volunteer for civilian defense uh, responsibilities lagged. People hoarded scarce materials. Uh, businesses were hoarding scarce materials and, and skilled labor so that their competitors couldn't get them. I mean, the, the level of selfishness, people lying on their applications for gasoline rations, um, the level of selfishness in the in the society during the first year of the war really surprised me um, and disturbed me. What encouraged you as a final thought? What encouraged me? The fact that we made it through. I think the fact that as Americans came to realize how serious the situation was, and I think they would have realized that sooner had the government leveled with the people, I think the the fact that they did respond um, admirably um, later on uh, was encouraging. Um, what? Although although there's still there's still hiccups along the way in '43 and '44. It's not it's not smooth sailing all the way. What encouraged me? I think the. The ability of average Americans to adapt to the changed circumstances and their willingness to um, to 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 supply the government with the manpower it needed. Um, you don't get a lot of cases of draft dodging. Um, I think the sort of quiet acceptance on the home front that 
some of their family members are are possibly not going to be coming home. I think I found that encouraging. Uh, a quiet acceptance of the dangers that the that the country was going through. As a Britisher uh, who's now happily also an American, I always say uh, British by birth, American by choice, I am very grateful for the resolute determination that Americans had to come in and help save Britain and Europe. And so I, I, I see that strain in your book of the positive American, despite, you know, the, the fluxes of strengths and weaknesses, overall a good people, as you've given uh, claim and, and testimony to in this work. I've been speaking to Dr. William K. Kingerman. He is the author, author of The Darkest Year, The American Home Front, from 1941 to 1942. It's published by St. Martin's Press. It's a great read. I hope you'll go out and get it. And I have to tell you, Dr. Kingerman, it has been an utter pleasure talking to you on Watching America. I have enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Blessings. been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn and our producer is Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer Chuck Dowd. Our chief of content is Heather Mazzoni and our CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. I want to thank you for making this program possible by your kind and generous contributions. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. Find all our conversations at whrv.org slash watching America.